The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's reading is Genesis chapter 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers and turned aside to a certain Adulamite whose name was Hira. There Judah saw the daughter of a certain Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and went into her, and she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kazib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her, and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground, so as not to give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up, for he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shearers, he and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. She took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Anam, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah had grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give me that you may come in to me? He answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? She replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Anaim at the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. 
Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own, or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Sheila, and he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scar scarlet thread on his hand, saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out, and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with the scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. The word of God for the people of God. I'm so glad it's a catechism Sunday. <laughs> Moms and dads have fun at lunch with this one, you know. All we've done so far is read the Bible. I haven't even said any words, okay? This is like if I came to your job and I just was like, well, let's watch you close this deal, right? Let's see you do this surgery. That's what you guys are doing to me right now. Like, well, let's see what you're going to do with this one. How are you going to preach this passage? So welcome. That's what we do here. We preach the Bible. Uh, and this story, for sure, is uh, an interesting one in, this, in the life of Joseph. My name is Bob, and uh, I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, I, if I'm honest with you, uh, last fall when I was studying and reading for this sermon, uh, the first thing I sort of encountered when I, when I was sort of paying attention to this story, I found myself thinking two things. One, why is this in the Bible? And two, how is this good? And so if you're feeling either of those things, uh, probably pretty normal thing for you to feel after hearing this read, right? What is this story doing in the Bible? And how does it fit in the story of Joseph? I thought we were tracking the life of Joseph. Joseph is not even mentioned in this chapter. We've got Judah and we've got Tamar. And this is just an odd story. It doesn't seem like it fits real clearly in the story of Joseph. Um, I want you to know, however, that uh, as I've meditated and studied more and understood how this fits into the Joseph story, I've become convinced this is one of the most beautiful and one of the most powerful stories in the Bible. So I think that's what you're going to walk out of here feeling this morning is the beauty and the power of this story. But it's certainly one of those at first pass that because of cultural distance and because of our distance of understanding, it takes some work for us to understand uh, what God is saying here. I thought about just asking Aaron Maddox to preach this sermon <laughs> for his second sermon ever at Quorum Day. I just like, well, Genesis 38, that's just where we are in the Bible. Sorry, dude. But I didn't think that'd be very nice. So um, let me mention two things right off the bat. First of all, this probably goes without saying, but so that you understand Old Testament narrative, remember, the text is descriptive, not prescriptive. It's describing what these people did. It's not telling you, now go be like them. That's not how the Bible's written. The Bible's not 
emulate these characters or be like these characters. The Bible is a story of God's grace in spite of human flaws and failures. So the text is descriptive. That's the first thing we need to keep in mind. The second thing that's worth saying is this is actually one of those texts that um, is great evidence for the reliability and authority of the scriptures. And here's why. Because if you were putting together a book and you wanted to portray your family history or your people in the best possible light, this is one of those stories you just leave out, right? Like if this book's just put together by humans trying to, you know, make themselves look as good as possible, this is the one you say, like, yeah, we don't need that story out there for the public. Let's just keep that one in the family archives, right? So the fact that a chapter like this is in the Bible and that the Bible in an unvarnished way tells us about the failures and follies of some of its characters is good evidence for why we can trust the scriptures to tell us the truth about reality and about God. So in order to get us into Genesis 38, I want to mention the literary structure. We've been saying as we've been going through this Old Testament narrative, the most important tool you need to read narrative is you need to understand what the writer, what the narrator is trying to tell us just by how the story is put together. Last week we saw the writer in chapter 37 doesn't mention God at all. And that's an intentional device to clue us into part of what that chapter is about. Well, in this chapter, the clue to the meaning of the story, the thing that you need to see that the writer is drawing our attention to, the clue to the meaning of the story is the birth of the twins at the end of the chapter. We already know that God has made a promise to Eve that one of her descendants is going to crush the head of the serpent and bring redemption to the world. And we know from this story later on in Genesis that God has also made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that it's their family line that will fulfill that promise. So the hope of the world lies with Jacob's family. We've talked about that. If Jacob's family doesn't make it to the end of Genesis, the world is doomed. And we've already seen that Jacob's family is fraught with internal tension and strife, right? As we looked at last week, they've sold one of their brothers into slavery. They've told a really creative lie about it. And now the whole family system is operating around this lie that's been believed as the truth. And so we're all in on the little deception. That's already bringing fragmentation and disunity to the family. And then here in chapter 38, verse 1, the narrator tells us it happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers. This idea of went down has a dual meaning. It's geographical. He's going down into the Canaanite lowlands. He's also going down morally to participate in the sin and the wickedness and the debauchery of the Canaanites. Jacob's family is disintegrating. Jacob's family is not on a good trajectory. And yet at the end of this chapter, twin boys are born. And in this classic reversal story, it looks like one of them is going to be the firstborn, but then the other comes out first. And so they give him the name Perez, which means breakthrough. And that's the key to the chapter. That's the key to what's going on here. What's happening in this chapter is God is breaking through. God is breaking through human evil and sin. God is breaking through a story that's complicated and convoluted. God is breaking through in his grace. And the good news for you is that no matter how bleak things seem, God can break through. That's the theme 
of this chapter. So I want to dive into the story and show you three ways that God is breaking through in the story of Judah and Tamar. You've already heard the whole chapter read, and so I'm not going to read every single verse, but let's just track through the narrative together. Uh, I've already mentioned in verse 1 that we, we hear that Judah went down to the Canaanites. That, that has a dual meaning. And the first thing he does as he goes down among the Canaanites, now keep in mind, what separates Jacob's family, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their people is that they're in covenant with the one true God. The Canaanites are pagan people. They're idolaters. They're people who don't worship God. The first thing that Judah does after he goes down to the Canaanites is he marries a Canaanite. That's the one thing that his great-grandfather Abraham and his grandfather Isaac were so committed not to do that they expended great personal energy and time and expense to make sure they got wives for their sons who feared the Lord. So in a family that has said, the one thing God wants us not to do is marry a Canaanite. It's the first thing we see that Judah does. So it's a little sidebar, just so we can say this. If you're a Christian, God's intent is for you to marry a Christian. And it's not because non-Christians are not beautiful, wonderful, kind people. It's because the most important thing that's going to be true in a spouse is what are they living for? Like what's ultimate in their life? What are they worshiping and chasing after and following? That's going to define everything else about their existence. And God's intent is that if you're a Christian... You link up with somebody who likewise is committed to honoring God, worshiping God, following God, and obeying God. So that's God's intent for this family, and Judah already has departed from that. And the narrative in the beginning of the chapter is really compact and terse. It kind of clips along. Notice what we see about Judah. He saw the daughter of a Canaanite, he took her, he went into her, she conceived and bore a son. This is cluing you into the kind of man Judah is. He's not discerning. He's not interested in this person's story. You as a reader learn nothing about his wife because that's the kind of person he is. He doesn't care to get to know a human being. He's after pleasure. He's after sex. He's after whatever comes easily for him. And remember, by the way, the secret that Judah and his brothers are hiding. Think about how much guilt and shame he's probably carrying. What do people do when they're hiding in shame? They usually don't make things better. They oftentimes make decisions that make things worse. If you're hiding something shameful, you need to know that the only way to freedom is through forgiveness, through bringing it into the light, confessing, repenting, allowing God's mercy to break into that story. That's what makes shame relieved and go away. Hiding it tends to only make things worse. And so Judah's going to bring his own shame and guilt and dysfunction, and it's going to pour out into lots of the rest of the people in this story. Now, in this culture, as you may know or you may surmise, property and inheritance flows through your family line. That's how you have wealth. That's how you have something to pass on to the next generation. There's no Medicare. There's no Social Security. There's no 401ks, right? That's all modern stuff, okay? In this culture, the way you are provided for is through your family. And so one of the ways the law sought to protect vulnerable people was that if a man died without any children, his nearest relative was to marry his widow and raise up children on his behalf. 
so that a portion of the inheritance would pass to his children and therefore they could take care of their mom and the, the family possessions and inheritance would pass on. So that's what Judah's second son ought to be doing. But look what we learn about him in verse 9. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. In other words, Onan is just like his dad. He's a selfish man. He's not interested in the well-being of his brother or his brother's wife. He's certainly not interested in sharing his portion of the inheritance with a son who's not legally going to be counted as his. So he does what wicked men do. He enjoys sexual pleasure and shirks the responsibility that comes with it. And verse 10 is rather sobering. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Keep in mind, this is after a chapter where we've heard not, we haven't even heard God's name mentioned in all of chapter 37. In chapter 38, the Lord's name is mentioned twice. And in both places, what the Lord shows up to do is to put one of Judah's sons to death. First, his son Ur, and second, his son Onan. These are wicked men doing wicked things, and so God brings judgment upon them. And what God is doing is he's breaking through Judah's rebellion. Judah has turned his back on God's promises. Judah is living among the Canaanites. Judah has no concern to disciple his children in the ways of the Lord. He's failing to honor God with his life. And so God acts in severe mercy to get his attention. And sometimes that's what it takes, right? I mean, some of you have been in seasons of rebellion against God, and it took severe mercy for God to wake you up and get your attention. Because God loves his people, because God pursues his people, because God is faithful to you, even when you're unfaithful to him, sometimes when you are in rebellion, God gets your attention, uses severe mercy to wake you up. The scriptures are clear that that's because God is faithful and good. Some of you may be in rebellion against God this morning. Maybe you're hard-hearted. Maybe you're running from him. You need to know if it takes tough love to bring you to your senses, that's what God will do because he is that kind of a God. He's so committed to his people and so committed to pursuing them that he deals in tough love to bring them to their senses. And that's what he's doing to Judah here in this story. Now, unfortunately, Judah's not getting the message yet. And so the story continues. So first thing we see is God breaks through rebellion to bring reckoning. He's trying to get Judah's attention. Judah's rebellious against him. But second, God breaks through sin to reveal grace. God breaks through sin to reveal grace. This happens here in the middle part of the story. By this point in the story, we already know that God has promised to redeem the world through a human being. And we know that that human being is going to come from the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We know that as readers of the story and everybody in the story knows that because they've received the promises of God. And so if Judah believes God and believes the promises of God, the one thing he should be seeking to do is to further his family. Because this is how redemption is going to come to the world. He should be giving Tamar in marriage to his youngest son, Shelah, 
as God's law required and as he promised that he would do. But he's not doing that. In fact, he, he's reasoned it out that somehow she must be the problem. Verse 11, he says, hey, go back to your father's house till my son Shelah grows up. It says, for he feared that he, his third son, would die like his brothers. The way it's made sense in Judah's mind is this is a bad luck bride somehow. She, my first two sons died when they were married to her. I'm not going to give the third one to her. It must be something wrong with her. Now look with me at the end of verse 14, and we turn now and meet, or we turn the focus to Tamar in this story. And it says, she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. Now it's not like this is dawning on her for the first time. When the narrator says she saw, the narrator is cluing you into what she's recognizing and realizing about the situation. Shelah has grown up. Judah has not given me to him in marriage. He has lied about the fact that he's going to. And he seems to have no intention of fulfilling his covenant obligations. And so seeing this, reading the situation and understanding the predicament that she's in, Tamar takes matters into her own hands. And she concocts this daring ruse. She dresses up as a prostitute, and seduces Judah in order to essentially trick him into carrying forward the family line. Now, the question you probably are wondering as a reader, the question an intelligent reader is wondering at this point in the story is, is, is that a good thing for her to do? Like, is what she does honorable here? And the answer is no, it's not honorable. There are echoes here of the story of Abraham and Hagar. Do you remember that story in Genesis 16? God shows up, promises Abraham a son. A few years go by. Abraham doesn't have a son, doesn't understand how he's going to get a son. And so Abraham and Sarah make up their own plan. They get Abraham a second wife, Hagar, and they basically say, let's try to have a son with her, and maybe that's how God will fulfill his promises. And the narrator in Genesis is clear. They're taking the matter into their own hands. And Tamar is essentially doing the same thing here. The predicament she's in is real. Judah's sin against her is real. She's taking matters into her own hands. And her actions in this story, though morally compromised, are also quite courageous. Because here's a woman who, by right, should be in the line of promise. Like she should be bearing the firstborn of the next generation. But because of Judah's wickedness, she's living as a widow in her father's house cut out of the line of promise. And so if you ask who in this story believes the promises of God enough to act, the answer is Tamar. Judah doesn't. Judah's a wicked, unbelieving man. Tamar believes the promises of God enough to act. Let's pick up the story then in verse 24 where we get to the, the sort of major conflict about three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, reasonable, kind, just man that he is, bring her out and let her be burned. That's, that's a wonderful man right there, right? Actually, that's way more words than Judah said. In the Hebrew text, there are two words. Burn her. 
The English translators are trying to do justice to sort of, you know, a lot of the things that are going on in the narrative. But Jude is very terse. He immediately says, well, death penalty for her. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify whose these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Now, you know from earlier in the story, she received these things from him as a pledge. These things are like the driver's license and credit card of the ancient Near East. They are personally identifying information. Everybody who looks at these is going to know who they belong to. It's like having a photograph on your ID, right? So she says, hey, um, just whoever these belong to, that's who the father of this child is. And notice when she says, please identify whose these are, your mind should go back to chapter 37. Because this is the exact same phrase that Judah and his brothers used when they held up a coat of many colors dipped in a goat's blood and said to their father Jacob, please identify whose this is. Does this belong to your son? She uses the exact same language here. Please identify whose these are. And in that moment, friends, that's the turning point of the story because notice what happens next. Then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I. That's the turning point. She is more righteous than I. In this moment, Judah finally acknowledges his sin. Up until this point in the story, he was ready to condemn his daughter-in-law for her sin. Now he's recognized, actually, she's the righteous one in this scenario. I'm the one who has sinned. I'm the one who needs grace. This is an absolute turning point for Judah. And his character changes in this moment. Friends, one of the truest ways to see whether you really have understood the grace of God and been changed by it is simply to ask, do I see my own sin as clearly as I see the sins of other people? Because one of the classic signs of self-righteousness is fault-finding, right? All of us are very skilled at pointing out the sins and flaws of other people. There's something in us that's just prone to point the finger and say, well, here's what you're like. Why don't you get that part of your life straightened out? This is why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount gives that famous image of, hey, you know what? Before you go to take the speck out of your brother's eye, you should probably take the log out of your own eye. He's pointing out this same dynamic in the human heart, that there's this tendency to self-righteousness and self-justification that says, you're a worse person than I am. I mean, when these people tell Judah, a man who himself has solicited a prostitute and still doesn't know where his driver's license is, that's who we're talking about here, he doesn't know where his credit cards are, but they say, hey, your daughter-in-law is pregnant by immorality. He does not say, well, sounds like we should have a conversation. He doesn't say some things we should probably explore here. He doesn't say, tell me what happened. What he says is, burn her. It's possible, I think, that he's so quick to that judgment because of his own sin and shame, right? A great way to relieve the shame in your own heart is to find fault with others. 
You guys can all see the double standard in the story. It's one of the things that makes the story feel just wrong to us right on the surface. Because you can all see he's condemning her for the exact same thing that he did. And that's what self-righteousness does. It sees the sins of others, but not your own. But in this moment, when Judah says, she is more righteous than I, friends, something beautiful is happening. What's happening is God is breaking through sin to reveal grace. This is the moment in the story of Joseph where Judah's character begins to change. He becomes a different person from this moment on. In fact, it starts right here in the latter part of verse 26 where it says, and he did not know her again. There's a new commitment to sexual sobriety, to honoring this person he has dishonored. And later on in the story, Judah is going to take the lead among his brothers. You're going to see him stand in in Egypt and be willing to go into prison in order for Benjamin, his brother, to go free. Judah is going to become a man who takes responsibility for others instead of using others for his own purposes. And that's the kind of change grace can bring about. That's what happens when you encounter the grace of God breaking in in your life. Grace can take hardened people and turn them into soft people. Grace can take self-righteous people and turn them into gracious people. Grace can take selfish people and make them others-centered people. That's what's happening in this moment in Judah's life. And in fact, if you're wondering to go back to the introduction of the sermon, why chapter 38 is part of the story? Why is this chapter here in a story that's about the life of Joseph? The answer you're going to see when we get to chapters 49 and 50 is because at the end of Genesis, Joseph recedes into the background. And you know whose line comes to the forefront? The line of Judah. Judah is the one who will be most significant in the fullness of this story. And this chapter is here to show us the moment when God's, bra- God's grace breaks in to Judah's story and begins to change the kind of person he is. And friends, seeing the change in a character like Judah ought to give you a lot of hope for your life that, yep, God changes really hardened people. God's grace can do amazing things in all of us, just like it did in Judah. So God breaks through rebellion to bring reckoning. God breaks through sin to reveal grace. And finally, God breaks through human failure to reveal divine mercy. God breaks through human failure to reveal divine mercy. Look at the end of the chapter. Verse 27, when the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out and she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, breakthrough. I've already told you this birth is the key event. It's the theme that sets up what's happening in the chapter. But I want to show you just how big a breakthrough this is. So I want you to hold your spot here in Genesis 38 and turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the very first book of the New Testament. In fact, turn to the very first verse of the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew begins his Gospel this way. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, 
and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, then Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Every king you will meet in the story of the Bible, every single descendant of David was born because of this breakthrough in Genesis 38. And more importantly, the Lord Jesus Christ was born because of this breakthrough in Genesis 38. Jesus is a descendant of Perez. So this isn't just a breakthrough in Judah's story. This isn't just a breakthrough in Tamar's story. This is God breaking into our world, friends. But for this story, we have no Savior and there's no gospel. This is God breaking into our world and showing us the kind of God he is. The kind of God who breaks into your story and mine, despite our best attempts to keep him out of the story. Despite our best attempts to rebel and resist, God breaks in. And so here's the real question that Genesis 38 answers. What hope is there for flawed people? What hope is there for flawed people? Like Judah and Tamar and you and me. Well, our hope is that there's a God who breaks through rebellion and sin and failure. What Judah and Tamar need is they need someone who can forgive their sin. They need someone who can remove their guilt and shame. They need someone who can give them a new life and a new story. And that's what God does through Jesus Christ, the descendant of Perez. The good news of this story, friends, is that God uses flawed people. In fact, it's the only kind of people he uses. The only people this story is not good news for is all of you here this morning who are not flawed. So if that's you, I mean, maybe this isn't good news for you. But for all of you who are flawed people, this story is very good news because it's preaching to us the message that God uses flawed people. Through Jesus, he changes them, he sets them free, he gives them a brand new story. That's good news for Judah, and it's good news for Tamar, and it's good news for you and me. Listen, I wonder how many of you have decided that you probably just don't fit in God's story. Like you probably failed too badly. You've messed up your life too greatly. You've missed your second chance and your third chance and your fourth chance and your fifth chance. And so if you've sort of just written yourself out of the story, God wants to break through your despair this morning. He wants to remind you that flawed people are the only kind of people he uses. No one's sin, no one's failure, no one's weakness, no one's flaws are too great for God to break into their story and change them and use them. I wonder how many of you here this morning are maybe like Judah. 
You can see themes of self-righteousness and hard-heartedness in your story. God wants to break through your rebellion and by His grace make you gentle and humble, a person who takes responsibility rather than shirking it and who loves others rather than using them. I wonder how many of you can relate maybe to a character like Tamar. Maybe you feel used, forgotten, set aside. God wants to break through your hopelessness and bring courage. Make you bold and full of faith for the good things he can do through you. My hope as we encounter this story is just that God would break through in our lives and our stories this morning that you would believe that despite the very real truth that you're a flawed person, that God wants to break into your story and use it. And in fact, that that's exactly why he sent the Lord Jesus Christ, so that you can be forgiven of your sin, set free from your guilt and shame, and given a new story. And that the reason this story is in the Bible is so you can read this and go, well, cool, if God can break into this story, then I bet he can break into my story as well. Listen, friends, I want to remind you something else. We're, we're sitting here centuries after this story happened, right? We're looking back on something God did a long time ago. We're reading about this story and we're seeing how God broke in. And then we can trace the, the themes all the way to the Lord Jesus Christ and realize how God in this story is actually bringing salvation to the world in his son. But all of us are also living in a story, right? We're living actually in the same story as this one. God is still moving forward his kingdom in the world. He's still advancing his purposes in the world. And one day, none of us are going to be here anymore. And our descendants are going to be sitting around telling stories of what God's been doing in the world. Telling stories of what God did back in our day in Omaha, Nebraska or through our church. And I want to remind you, when our descendants are sitting around telling those stories about what God did through you, how God moved in your day in history, there are going to be no flawless individuals in that story. The only people they're going to be telling stories about are flawed human beings through whom God made his grace known in the world. The only people in the story are Judah's and Tamar's, flawed people through whom the grace of God breaks through. This story continues even now. Like there are people in your life that God wants to break into their story through you. People you know, people you work with, people in your family, where God wants his grace to come into their lives. And part of the people he's going to use to do that are you. God is still breaking into this world through the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through his people. And so this story isn't just for you to know that God's grace can break into your life. This story is also for you to be reminded that God's also breaking into our world now through his people as his grace goes forward through us, as we encounter his goodness and as we pass it along to others so that they might encounter his goodness as well. Friends, would you pray and let's ask him to do that through us.
glorious God, this morning, would you break through our pride, our shame, our unbelief? Because of what you've done through the descendant of Perez, the Lord Jesus Christ, would you break through in fresh grace in our lives this morning? For those who are rebellious, like Judah, would you break through and bring them to their knees in repentance and confession? For those who are marginalized, like Tamar, would you break through and bring them to their feet with fresh courage and joy and hope? And God, remind us that every one of us as a flawed person can be used and transformed by you because you are the God who breaks through. So we just give you praise and honor and worship this morning. And we ask that you would break through into our lives, into our stories, into our city, and into our world. Use us as vessels of your grace. We pray for our good and your glory. Amen.